This is Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22, and uh, we will make our way through the end of the chapter, okay? Ephesians 5. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. All right, let's close in prayer. No. Um, <laughs> All right, verse 23. (laughs) For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should, should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is God's word for us tonight. Let me pray, and then we're going to jump in and look at it, okay? Father, we ask uh, for your help in these next few moments as we uh, draw our attention to your word. We pray, uh, knowing that we have no hope of understanding what this means apart from your interceding help. So please, Holy Spirit, come, open up our eyes, unclog our uh, ears, and soften our hearts so that we may be able to behold what is true and what is good and what is right. And so we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, my wife, Catherine, and myself have been married for four and a half years, and we like to say that our relationship uh, has texture to it. it it's not smooth and glossy, it's um, textured. And uh, just want to give you a couple highlights about our, you know, just the story of our marriage so that you can kind of get an idea of what I'm talking about. Um, the very first time that I kissed Catherine, she laughed at me. Um, that's what happened. The very first time I told Catherine that I loved her, she cried, and it was not tears of joy. Um, it was deep pain. Um, her reactions totally crushed my expectations, and uh, they were totally unexpected, and uh, yeah, they, they kind of obliterated my expectations. But, uh, but here's why I'm talking about this, is because tonight... Of course, we're looking at marriage, and it's fun to kind of reflect and think about stories from your own relationship. And, um, but also, this passage will crush your expectations just as much as Catherine will, because everybody comes into the idea of marriage with assumptions and with expectations. Some of you are dreaming about it and fantasizing about it and you're already looking through bridal magazines and have picked out your dresses and uh, some of you guys are thinking about uh, the perfect wife for you. And this passage will obliterate your expectations because marriage is messy and it is hard and you will marry a selfish, sinful person. 
Others of you are suspicious of marriage and uh, frankly don't really want anything to do with it. Uh, a lot of it because you probably came from uh, exposure to marriages that were just sucky and terrible. And so this passage looks at you and also crushes your expectations because it says marriage is glorious and beautiful. It doesn't really get any deeper than this passage. And so in some ways, this is kind of even a a tease to, to, to try and skim the surface of the questions that it raises because these questions are so deep. But the questions that I want you to see that this passage at least helps us answer are threefold. So I just want to look at these three questions and then take a brief look at it in the time that we have, even though it's kind of ridiculous to even try and go there. But here we are, so we're going to do it. Here are the questions. What do you want? What is love? And what is marriage? Those are the three questions. What do you want? What is love? And what is marriage? Okay, so we're just going to look at these one at a time. Here's the first question. What is it that you want? I'm sure you noticed in verse uh, 22, it begins and says, Wives, submit to your husbands. Now, Hit the pause button right there, and before you throw tomatoes and cabbages at me, uh, I also want you to see that the husband is, co- is commanded to do something as well. Look in verse 25. It says, husbands, love your wives. So you see there is a unique command given to each of them. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Now, does this mean, wives, you're not supposed to love your husbands? No. Does this mean... Husbands, you're not supposed to submit to your wives? No. So what does it mean? Well, each of these, here's what's going on. Each of these unique commands is given to the person in reference to the, other, to the opposite, to their partner's gender. Because what's going on is it's tapping into something deep and intrinsic about each of their design each of their makeup. And so what it's commanding the person to do is to draw out and tap into, the, uh, tap into their femininity or tap into their masculinity and draw out their potential. Some of you are going, this makes no sense. <laughs> Let me explain what I mean. Let's first look at this idea of masculinity. When the passage looks at, at women, looks at the wives and says, submit to your husbands, that word submit which you all love, is a military term. It means to be under the authority of, in in the sense that a soldier is under the authority of a general. What this means practically is not that the wives are just supposed to receive orders and follow orders all day long from their commanding general. No, what it rather means is that they are are, are supposed to support and to encourage and to root for their husbands and and to communicate that what he is doing is meaningful and significant. It it means to, to be his biggest advocate, his biggest cheerleader. And the question is why? Why is that command given for the wives to relate to their husbands in that way? And here is where we begin to tap into man's manness, his, his masculinity, because there is something deeply, intrinsically deep in men that wants to make impact in the world, that wants to do something significant, to accomplish something, to move out into the world and do something and have meaning out there. This is why, for example, everything is a competition with us. And girls can't understand and get frustrated by the fact that we get so competitive over ping pong and foosball and stupid things that uh, 
You don't understand why we get so competitive about it. It's because we want to do something meaningful. We want to accomplish something to make an impact. Literally, guys will be in a dorm room. One of them will crumple up a, a piece of paper, throw it in the trash can, hit it. You know, it goes in the trash can. Go booyah to his uh, roommate. <laughs> Y'all do that, right? And uh, the roommate will go, you know what? I bet I can beat that. And literally walk across the room, take out the trash and say, I can throw it. I can get in there farther than you did. And now they throw it in. And they've just, so already they enter into this ridiculously stupid competition. Why? Why do we do that? It's because we want to do something meaningful. We want to feel like we have accomplished something. That's what's driving this whole competitive thing in us, guys. This is also why, stereotypically, guys don't like to ask for directions. It, it, it's, a, it's, it's, it's actually a shame factor for guys because it's communicating, I have failed at accomplishing something. I have failed at, at doing this task of making impact in the world. And so the passage looks at wives and says, look, you need to know that that is true about guys. That is deeply intrinsic to their manness. So, so respect them. That is their deepest need to respect them, to, to encourage them, and to be an advocate for them in that way. And when you do, you tap into something deep about them and draw out their potential and enable them to flourish. But what about the flip side? What about uh, femininity? What is this passage commanding guys to do, right? It says, guys, husbands, love your wives. And again, this is where we begin to tap into something deep and intrinsic about a woman's womanness, her, her femininity. And, and it's not to move out into the world and to make impact. It is, the, it is the nurturing and the cultivation of relationships. It is love. Now, again, well, not again, but I should say up front, these are big, overgeneralized statements. Of course, there are some women in the room that are like, whoa, I, I have a desire to make impact in the world, too. I, I know. Put down the cabbages. Um, but this is saying that there is something deeply intrinsic to you that is all about relationships. You're, 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 you are at a very deep level in a way that is not true of a man about the cultivation and the nurturing of relationships. So, for example, when guys get together with your girlfriends and uh, the guy's like, hey, like, you want to go out to see a movie or something? And the girl's like, no, let's just, let's just talk. <laughs> and the guy's like, what, talk? About what? Like, what do you mean? There's, there's a desire to connect, to actually have a relationship and connect with that person. Again, without being <laughs> overly stereotypical, um, if you did a sociological survey, it would be typically true that there are more females showing up in romantic comedies than there are guys showing up in those movie theaters. My wife has told me she believes that it's because some women actually unconsciously put themselves in the place of the heroine of that movie because in that moment, that's what it's like to feel love and to feel pursued and to feel chosen by a guy. That's why they're popular. Girls just do relationships so much better than guys. Example from my life, um, I t I t my best friend lives in Charlottesville, Virginia. He was the best man at my wedding. We keep up every now and then. I talked to him a few months ago and he had just had his second child, second baby. And I didn't even know that they were pregnant. For nine months, he hadn't informed me of this. This just shows you how bad guys are at this. He hadn't asked 
Anyway, he, didn't he didn't say anything, and I hadn't asked. We're, we're just terrible at relationships. Girls are not. But you don't have to have the Bible tell you that guys and girls are intrinsically very different and have very different needs and very different desires. I mean, there's a million examples from pop culture. I'll just give one. Download the Harvard sailing team videos from YouTube. <laughs> Write it down, Harvard sailing team. You'll know what I'm talking about. Everybody knows that this is true. But what this does is it says, okay, the Bible looks at your basic makeup as a man, your basic makeup as a woman, and it says, if you want a relationship, if you want a marriage that truly sings, that is truly harmonizing, then wives respect your husbands, and husbands love your wives. I mean, this is how this whole passage ends. Look at verse 33. However, each one of you, he's talking about husbands, must uh, also must love his wife as he loves himself, and his wife must respect her husband. Now, for those of you who are in a relationship right now, or for the 1% in the room that are actually married, what does this mean for you? <laughs> well, I think it's very obvious. So let's just look at it. Guys, here's what this means for you. When you choose her over a video game, or over a night with the boys, or over just hanging out with somebody else, when you actually choose her, you are loving her in a deep, intrinsic way. In a way that for you just feels very shallow. It's like, okay, I'll hang out with her tonight instead of this. But to her, you are choosing and pursuing her and trying to connect with her. And that does connect with her at a deep level. Ladies, am I correct? When you get chosen, that loves her. So girls, what does this mean for you in relationships? I think this means, one, to hold your tongue in criticizing him as much as you could. <laughs> and it means rather take those moments to encourage him and to speak words that say, I am for you. And what you are doing is meaningful and is significant. Because those words, even though they may feel shallow to you, this is beginning to tap into something deep, into his masculinity that says, yes, this woman actually loves me and respects me and thinks that what I do is important. And that taps into something deep within him. But okay, what about the rest of you in the room that aren't in relationships? What does this have to do with you? Well, I think it does, may, it does have some relevance for your life. So, so ladies, here's what I think this means for you. And you're going to hate me for this. And this is not the Bible. This is just my thought. I think what this means for you is that if a guy asks you out on a date, you say yes, even if you know you're not interested. Here's why. Because, you know, I hear girls saying all the time, why don't, guys, why don't guys ask us out? Why don't they ask us out? You know why? It's because of this sh shame factor, fear of rejection. This is, they are afraid of being rejected. So when you say yes, even if you know, okay, I don't know if I'm interested in this person, but I'll give it a shot. That encourages him to ask more of y'all out. And that's what y'all want, right? So say yes. <laughs> Guys, what does this mean for you? Here's what I think this means for you. That you have got to do a better job of remembering things about your friends' lives that happen to be girls. And ask them about it. Hey, how was that trip home with your family this weekend? How's your major going? How's your family? <laughs> Having a conversation with a girl will love her in a deep way that for you just kind of feels stupid, but for them, it really actually loves them even in a way that it's not pursuing them romantically. Because this is what both of y'all want. 
Women, you want to be loved. Men, you want to be respected. And that's the answer to the first question. What do you want? I told you it was deep. And we're going to keep going because here's the second loaded question. What is love? What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. <laughs> there, is, there, is not a, um, there is not a word in the English language that has been hijacked and redefined more than this word. Love. Because when you say, I love somebody, when you use that word, I love my boyfriend, I love my fiance, I love, you know, whatever, you're referring to, what, what you mean by that is I have really intense, positive affections for them. You're referring to the way that you feel. I, I feel really strongly about them. And that has how love has been redefined by our culture. It's something that you kind of fall into. I mean, it's like a ditch. You fall into love. <laughs> or, um, or it's like a, you catch a cold. You kind of just involuntarily get infected by love. And uh, that's what it's referring to. It's referring to feelings. But that's not how the Bible defines it. That's not how the Bible defines it. Look at the assumption behind how the Bible uses this word. Look at verse 25. It says, Husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Love is an action first. It's referring to the way that Jesus loved the church. And Jesus didn't love the church by having some feeling. Jesus loved the church by giving himself up for her. Love is primarily an action first and a feeling second. I mean, how else could the Bible command you to love people and to love your enemies? That's what this is getting at. To love them is an action. This is why when you see two people standing up in a, in a wedding uh, ceremony, they are not declaring their present feelings of love for each other, they are promising future actions of love for each other. I promise that I will love you uh, for richer or poorer, uh, in plenty and in want, um, whatever the other ones are. What's another one? Um, sickness and in health. These are promises about the future. I will love you then. Okay, well, what if we get poor and lose all of our money? I will still love you. What if I get sick and I lose this rocking body? Um, I will still love you. That is what's going on in a marriage ceremony. It is, there is very little, if not zero, reference to feelings at all. It's all about promising, uh, promising of uh, uh, actions. And if you choose to base your marriage on your feelings, that which comes and goes, then your marriage will fall apart. This is why dating, in my opinion, it just really sucks. I'm sorry, it does. You know it does too. I'm, I'm for you dating. I just think it's just, it's just hard because the entire, there's no real glue binding y'all together. The thing that is really holding y'all's relationship together is your feelings for each other. And that's a very dangerous place to be because theoretically the girl could wake up and say, you know what? I'm just not all that excited about him today. And just pull the plug. If, if that's what's holding the relationship together is your feelings, feelings come and go. That's not the way that, that our marriage works, though. I mean, it, my wife, Catherine, I'm sure there have been many mornings where she wakes up and goes, I'm not all that excited to be waking up next to this balding, smelly, weird guy. But she can't, 
She can't just go, all right, I'm out. <laughs> Why? Why can't she do that? It's because she stood up in front of God and in front of a church full of people and said, I will love this man regardless of my feelings. I will love this man regardless of circumstance, regardless of conditions. The thing that is holding our relationship together is not feelings, but it is a promise. Just think about Jesus himself. When this passage says that he loved the church, do you think that it means that he was kind of caught up in this euphoria for a guilty, filthy adulterer who is constantly running away from him and wants nothing to do with him? That's not what it means when he says he loved her. It says he actually came down, hung up on a cross, and had blood pour out of his veins for her. That's what it means by love. Love looks a lot more like a battlefield than it does a Hallmark card. Now, some of you are going, just by your snickers, Matt, doesn't this take away from the romance of love? I mean... Uh, 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 the romance of marriage? I mean, you're kind of stripping all of the affection and love and all that good stuff for duty and death and blood, sweat, and tears and action. And So what do we do with this? C.S. Lewis has a great chapter on marriage in his book, Mere Christianity. If you, if you, haven't, read it, if you haven't read it, then you need to. But, but here's what he says. In, in that chapter, he's basically saying love, like anything else, has thrills at the beginning and those thrills fade away just how everything works. And so one of the examples that he uses is if you show up to a really beautiful place, the first time you're there, it's going to thrill you. It's going to be amazing. But if you actually moved there, those initial thrills would begin to fade away. And he says, okay, so does that mean it's not worth moving to a place of beauty? And his answer is, it is absolutely worth moving to a place of beauty because those thrills, as they fade... They give way to a quieter and and deeper and more lasting kind of interest. Here's, Here's what he writes. He says, let the thrill go. Let it die away. Go on through the period of death into the quieter interest and happiness that follows. And you will find you are living in a world of new thrills all the time. But... If you decide to make thrills your regular diet and try to prolong them artificially, they will all get weaker and weaker and fewer and fewer, and you will be a bored, disillusioned old man for the rest of your life. Here's what he means. You know when you first start to date somebody and there's kind of that electric excitement where everything is like butterflies and rainbows and you're just uh, infatuated? He says that initial thrill has to fade into something much more deeper where you begin to experience the blood and the sweat and the tears because that is where love really exists. That's where the good stuff is. Not with that intro exciting stuff. It's over here with the blood and the sweat and the tears. That's what he's saying. I I usually ask couples, and if you've sat down with me over coffee or if you're dating somebody, I've probably asked you this. Have y'all gotten in a fight or... um, have y'all, like, how do y'all do conflict? The reason why I ask that is not because I want y'all to fight and have conflict with one another. The reason I ask that is because I'm, I'm trying to see if you are willing to love somebody when you don't like that person. Are you willing to have a posture of love and of kindness towards them 
when you don't like them right then, when they're getting on your nerves, when they're picking on you, when they're criticizing you, when, when there's tension. Because if you don't, if you're not willing to love that person in that moment, then the person that you really love is not them, but it is you. And I don't think that's being too harsh. Because think about it. If you say, okay, I will love this person, I will relate to them in a loving way if they are nice to me, they don't criticize me, if they look good, if we get along. Come on, how self-involved can you be? Who are you loving? Are you loving them or are you loving you? And so the question is where the the practical application for all of this, I think kind of boils down to this. As you think about marriage, as you think about future relationships, as you think about your own relationships, the question that you should be asking yourself is this. Am I willing to love this person as they are? With all of their baggage, with all of their garbage, with all of their quirky and sinful habits, am I willing to commit to loving that person right there? Because some of you are silently waiting either within the context of a relationship or outside of a relationship where you're waiting for that person to change. Some of you are actually trying to make that person change. But what you're trying to do is, once they change and fit the certain uh, mold and they, they, they conform to the desires that I have for them, then I will commit to them. And the question you have to ask yourself is, okay, well then who are you really loving? You or that person? Because the call of love is to look at a particular human, as sinful, as messy as they are, and say, I am willing to commit to loving that right there. The way that they chew with their mouth open, the way that they are lazy, the way that they are selfish, the way that they are undisciplined. I am willing to love that person. That's the question you should be asking yourself. I'm not saying you shouldn't have standards. I'm just saying every person you have the potential to marry is going to be a particular sinner with particular sinful habits. Are you willing to take on theirs? Because that's what love is. Here's the third question. And this, is, this just feels unfair even to address the topic by skimming the surface, but here we are. One of these days, we'll devote an entire semester to exploring these issues uh, a lot more in depth of uh, love and sex and dating and marriage and all that jazz. Did someone just whisper sex? Like, he said sex. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Here it is, last question. What What is marriage? Look at verse 32. It says, this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Amazing verse, because what he basically says is, hey, this whole discussion, I've been talking about husbands and wives and the way that they love each other and care for each other, but you know what? I'm really talking about the gospel. You're like, what? Marriage, in a unique way, mirrors Jesus' relationship to his people. It mirrors the gospel and vice versa. The gospel is this. That Jesus came after his bride, his people, though she was ugly and filthy and guilty and undeserving and was constantly running away from him, he came down and pursued her. You know, I, I, I get this question sometimes from students, and they say, you know, at RUF or in Christian circles, you always talk about God loving you, but, but okay, how do you know? How do you know that God really loves you? And here's how you know. Historically, 
And the Bible's answer is this. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrated his own love for us in this. Here's how you can know. He demonstrated it. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how you can know. God looks at us. Here's what this means. God looks at us in all the ways that we have hurt him and betrayed him and cheated on him. And he says, I will not write you off. I will not break up with you over this. I will not make you pay for it. So instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to send my son Jesus down and make him pay for it for you. And so once he receives the punishment that you deserve and that I deserve, he says, now I I relate to you with no other posture other than love. No more wrath. I have no more problems with you. Only love. This is the great claim of the New Testament, is that there is no condemnation for those in Jesus. Jesus has taken care of it. God says, I will not break up with you. I will break Jesus in order to marry you and keep this marriage. Even though we constantly are running and running and running away from him, he continues to come running and running after us. That is the gospel. But Paul says the gospel, in a weird way, mirrors marriage. And marriage mirrors the gospel. So what I want to do for just the last few minutes is show you three ways that this is the case, how these things mirror each other, and then we'll be done. Here's the first way. Marriage shows you Jesus' love. Now, I don't think I would have known the extent of Jesus' love for me apart from being married to my wife, Catherine, because I'm sure a lot of you have inflated opinions of me being the spiritual leader person. But go ask my wife who I really am. She will tell you. I am selfish. I am lazy. And I don't want to do chores. I feel entitled to my time and to my space. I am forgetful. I say that I'll do things and I don't. Uh, I am not very thoughtful in the ways that I care for her. Down the list goes. And Catherine continues to love me. And it's only in that context where I've begun to see in a deeper and more concrete way the way that it says Jesus loves me for all of the mess that I am and to say, and I, to say that she continues to pursue me. It, it's, it's a way to show me that Jesus continues to pursue me. Marriage shows you Jesus' love. Here's the second way. Marriage shows you Jesus' forgiveness. The, the, the initiating act into the Christian life is repentance, right? I mean, you, you confess your sin, you, you repent of it, turn to Jesus and ask for forgiveness, and the gospel is that he gives you that forgiveness, right? But this whole cycle, if you've, if you've lived the Christian life long enough, you begin to know that the entire Christian life is a replaying of this cycle over and over and over because you're constantly sinning, constantly breaking God's laws, breaking his heart, having to repent, having to return to Jesus, and having him to tell you that you're forgiven. But that cycle happens over and over in marriage as well because you have two recklessly messy sinners living in the same house with each other and they're constantly hurting each other. So what I'm constantly having to do is saying, oh, Catherine, I did it again. I'm so sorry that I hurt you in this way. Will you forgive me? And she says, yes, I will. And she does the same way with me. And there's this cycle of repentance and forgiveness over and over and over. And my need for Catherine's forgiveness daily reminds me and shows me of my need for Jesus' forgiveness daily. It's a unique context that shows you in a real, weird, different way how Jesus forgives you. Here's the third way. Marriage shows you dependence on Jesus. 
you begin to realize that you don't really live independently anymore. You know, when I was single, I could get off work, go have dinner with my boys, uh, go, go to a movie and hang out till 1130 and come home and that'd be great. I didn't, you know, I could do, live my life without much kind of reference to anybody else, but I can't do that anymore. <laughs> I am uh, dependent upon another human being, so I, I am in some ways bound to her. I am bound to her. This is why the expression is that your spouse is a ball and chain. It's a te- you have terrible connotations, <laughs> but it's true. I am bound to Catherine. But here's the interesting thing, and the ironic thing is that I've never, I've never felt more free by being bound to her. There's this weird thing that happens. I mean, it, I, I love the band uh, Mumford and Sons. Um, I, I love them, but I have to disagree with their definition of love because you know that song "Sigh No More." Here's how they define love: Love, it will not betray you, dismay, or enslave you. It will set you free. Love won't enslave you. It will set you free. I think that's okay. But Derek Webb, I think, has it better. Because in his song, Love is Not Against the Law, he says that love simultaneously makes you a slave and sets you free at the same exact time. When you become bound to Jesus, you are the most free. You are the most human you have ever been. When you disconnect from Jesus, you become a slave. Think about it in your own life. Some of you have left high school, you've left your church, you've left your world, you've come up to college and said, I am free, zero accountability, I can do whatever I want. And you've disconnected from your roots, you've disconnected from Jesus, and you've lived the life that you've wanted to live, completely free. But you know, if you are honest, that that freedom feels a lot more like slavery, doesn't it? The addictions that it has sent you into, the patterns that you cannot break. When you disconnect from Jesus, you are a slave. When you enslave yourself to Jesus, you are free. It's the same way with marriage. I've bound myself, I've enslaved myself to Catherine, and I'm a free man. But I've got to wrap up here, because we're out of time. But uh, I know some of you are going, okay, still, what does all of this have to do with me? I'm not married. I'm not going to get married for a number of years, even if I get married. And there's some of you in the room that are saying, I don't want to get married, period. So does this Bible portion have no relevance to your life at all? Here's how this has relevance to you. My my old RUF campus minister back from my undergrad days, Doug Servan, he put it this way. If you want to uh, graduate with a certain major, you have to look ahead and see what classes to take, right? You can't just take whatever classes and just hope that that'll land you a major. You have to plan ahead and get direction and sit down with an advisor and kind of map out a plan. The way that you map out a plan for your life right now, as you think about marriage, you think about love, relationships, whatever down the road, the way that you plan now for the future, whatever the future is, is to believe the gospel. That's what you do right now. Because the more that you make Jesus your joy, the more that you make Jesus the center of your life, the more that you realize that as great as marriage is, it will not satisfy you. It will not make you whole. The more that Jesus is your savior, the less that marriage becomes your savior. And you begin to look through the cultural lie that if you just marry the right person, your life will be put together and whole and you will be happy. And that is a lie. What is true is that only Jesus 
the one who has loved your soul to the point of death, who has pursued you, even when you are running from him, he is the only one that can really make you whole. And so the invitation of this passage, marriage, relationships, whatever aside, the invitation of the passage is to flee to Jesus, your true husband. Only he will satisfy you. So consider that an invitation tonight. And let's pray. Father, I ask that you would give us eyes to see the beauty and the goodness and the truth and the glory of our husband, Jesus, who has loved us well when we were unlovely. Pray, Father, that you would give us a heart that is inflamed for him and not for marriage, not for others. Not that those are bad, Father. You know those are good things. But I pray that he would be our top priority and my top priority. Thank you for your grace and your love to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.